The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, this is Kwame. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Negotiate Anything podcast. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to remind you about this one-of-a-kind training that we have coming up next week. Our most critical negotiations are now happening online. So I want to ask you something. Have you ever been trained specifically on how to negotiate online? And for most of us, the answer is going to be no. We probably had negotiation trainings that touched on it, but we've never received specific training on how to negotiate online. And that's why we've created this virtual training called How to Leverage Technology to Succeed in Your Online Negotiations. And it's all about helping you to create a custom strategy for you and your team that'll help you to get the best deals possible in these online negotiations. This is a two-hour training and it's going to happen on June 4th and we'd love to have you. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode of Negotiate Anything. Thanks for spending time with us today. It's listeners like you in 181 different countries that have made Negotiate Anything the most popular negotiation and conflict resolution podcast in the world. I'm your host, Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer, mediator, professor, and the director of the American Negotiation Institute. Before we get started, I have two quick questions for you. Is negotiation a critical part of what you do? Do you need to resolve conflict and persuade at work? If you answered yes to both of those questions, visit our website to learn more about our negotiation workshops. We've traveled the country working with professionals just like you, and we'd love to have the opportunity to work with you too. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Lauren, thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me, Kwame. Oh, it's our pleasure. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. My name is Lauren Newell. I'm a professor of law at the Ohio Northern University Pettit College of Law, where I teach things like business organizations and negotiation and other topics like that. And before I started teaching, I was a corporate lawyer in New York City with the law firm of Boy Schiller and Flexner. So that's how I get my background in all these corporate and negotiation type things. Very nice. Perfect. Yeah, we're excited to have you. And especially given your recent research focus on online negotiations. Before we get into the actual interview, can you give us a little background on that too? Sure. I have been doing more research on actually what happens to people um, because of technology. And so my, my focus is on lawyers mostly because I'm a law professor, so lawyers and law students, but it really applies to anybody who uses technology, which these days is everybody. I wrote an article a few years ago called Redefining Attention and Revamping the Legal Profession for the Digital Generation. Uh, which was about the impact of all this new technology on attention, what it's doing for us. And I spun off a couple of pieces on that about uh, more focused on negotiation and how technology is impacting negotiators and the way that they may negotiate. And I followed that up with another article called Rebooting Empathy for the Digital Generation, which looks at the impact that technology might be having on new generations' ability to empathize and, and generally to be empathic. And my hope for my next project is to be looking at the impact of technology on stress, people's stress level, and how that impacts the way that we work professionally and how we are just personally in our our lives and well-being. Perfect. Wow. This is is really exciting because for obvious reasons, all of your, your focus is here 
are really coming to a head at this time. So I, I would say the work that you do is more important now than ever. Well, I hope so. I know a lot of people are writing about how to use technology, how to be better while using technology. My focus, because I have an interest in psychology, that's what really brought me into negotiation, is what is technology doing to us? How is it changing the way that we interact? How is it changing the way that we negotiate? How is it changing the way that we live? And is that good or bad? So that's what I've been looking at. Fantastic. Great. I am super excited to get into this. And so the, the three topics that we're going to focus on are the impact of technology on your attention, your ability to empathize, and stress levels. So where should we start <laughs> as it relates to attention and technology in these conversations? Well, I guess we should start with understanding what attention is, which is a little harder than it sounds. When I went out to write this article, I said, oh, no worries. I'll just figure out what attention is, write that down, and get on to the meat of my article. And you know, six months later, I'm still struggling with what attention is. <laughs> It turns out that the scientists haven't come to any real consensus about everything. So I'll keep it sort of uh, high level here. But for our purposes, the two attentional control systems that we need to know about are what's called uh, bottom-up attentional control and top-down attentional control. So bottom-up attentional control is the kind of attention that makes us alert to our environment and alert to a sudden change in the environment. So you hear a door slam and you turn and you look. You hear a siren and you turn and you look, that sort of thing. And that came from back when we were you know, running around a Cro-Magnon man and, and trying not to get eaten by a lion, right? So we needed, or wherever we were. So we needed to make sure that if something came in and, and jumped at us, we would be alert and attentive to it. So this is a really primal, powerful form of attention or attentional control. And it turns out our brains have not evolved much over the last 40,000 years, we're still evolved to respond to these sudden changes in our environment. The other kind of attentional control is known as top-down attentional control. And that's the sort of effortful control that we put on making sure we're focused on a task, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, this high-level concentration. So if you're going to read a document, you have to make sure you're doing that and not doing all the other stuff you'd rather be doing than reading this maybe boring document. These two are always sort of fighting for which one is going to have primacy at any given point in time. And so if you're reading that document and somebody knocks on your door, you're going to stop what you're doing and turn your attention to the person at your door. I'm staring at my door right now, I'm waiting for someone to knock. Okay? And that is where the problems come in. Every time you shift your attention like that, whether you actually turn to the stimulus or you just hear it and say, I'm going to ignore it. You know, it's my husband. I don't care what he wants. Every time you do that, your brain has these costs. Right? So, and scientists refer to them as restart costs, switch costs, and resumption lags. And I've taken those out of order. But a switch cost would be, for example, the, the knock at my door. I stop looking at my document. I turn, and then I might turn back. So the time that it takes me to switch from what I'm doing to the other thing that I'm doing takes time. It slows me down. The next thing, I have to turn back to what I'm doing, back to my document, and that takes a little bit of time. So there's my restart cost or my uh, resumption lag there. And even if I don't switch what I'm doing, I don't look at the door and I just stay here and I ignore my husband, it's the same for my brain. My brain has gone, should I think about that? Should I talk to him? Or should I just stick with my document? And so my brain is busy doing something else. And all of these 
costs are costs in performance and efficiency. So we talk a lot about multitasking. We're really good at multitasking. We could do all these different things and we want people in the workplace who are great multitaskers. As it turns out, our brains are really bad at that. It's very, very difficult and in most cases impossible to do two things that compete for the same cognitive resources at the same time. So if you tell your, your spouse or your partner, I am paying attention to you while I'm reading my text message, you're not. <laughs> your brain can't actually do both of those things. It has to choose. And so it switches back and forth really fast between them. Um, but every time it switches, it comes with these costs in efficiency in just time, right? And sometimes that doesn't matter. It doesn't really make a difference if it takes me an extra 30 seconds to read my document. But when we think about somebody in a really high pressure situation, think about a trauma surgeon who's, you know, every second counts when there's a gunshot wound, right? You don't want that person having switch costs or resumption lags or anything like that. So that's some of what scientists are looking at when they're looking at attention. Lauren, this is great. This is really, really exciting because first of all, I think the, the connections to negotiation are very clear because when we're having these difficult conversations, we need to be at our cognitive best. We need to focus on what it is that we're doing. I think about the, uh, the study on flow. You need to be able to focus on, on your task for, to perform at, at your best. And so even if you're able to maintain focus in the midst of a distraction, there's still going to be a cognitive cost. And I, I think it's really important for us to recognize that. So we're aware of what's at stake during these conversations and also what it takes to be at our best. And then another book reference on top of flow, and that's uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, because when we're talking about uh, top-down and bottom-up processing, they did a fantastic job of outlining it. It is a massive book, but well worth the read if you have the time. And that is one of the books I, I cite to in my articles that I was looking at in researching all this. And as you point out, negotiation is a really cognitively difficult task. All the things that you're asked to do, you're preparing for it, you're reading, you're researching, you're thinking about your strategy, you are dealing with somebody across the table, you're engaged in the conversation, you're trying to persuade. At the same time, you're trying to read the other person's reactions. So you're picking up on those nonverbal communications there. You're processing counter offers and thinking about how does that work? How would my client think about that? Or, or how, how comfortable am I with that conversation or that concept? And your brain is just really being asked to do a lot. And that's the other challenge is that our brains are really severely limited in how much they can do at one time. And scientists aren't sure exactly why that is. Some of them talk about it like a bottleneck, like we have a funnel and at some point the funnel narrows and our brains can only get through the little narrow part of the funnel. And so if we have all this stuff coming at us, we have to slow it down so that we can only go through the small part of the funnel. And so our brains are kind of lazy and also just limited in, in what we can do. And so the more stimuli that we're throwing at ourselves uh, when we're trying to pay attention, the harder it is to pay attention. And the more we get attention fatigue. And so I know you're familiar with the concept of uh, depletion and, and ego depletion. The same sort of thing seems to happen with attention. That by the end of a long, stressful time or a time when we're asked to make a lot of choices or think about a lot of things, it just gets hard to do it. And our brains kind of go, nope, I'm done. I can't do anymore. Right? And that's when it seems like we need to take a break or else 
we're going to probably make some bad negotiation choices. Like we've all been in those conversations in which we sort of want to go, whatever you want, as long as I can go home, <laughs> whatever you want <laughs> is fine. <laughs> right? So we'd like to make sure we're not getting to that point. And so how does technology play into all of this is the next question. And here's how. So technology does a lot of stuff. All right. And we know all the good things it does. It's letting you talk to me right now and me talk to you. We're, we're online and that's, that's tremendous. So it has all these good things. But the stuff that it does to our attention is capture it. It captures that bottom-up attention. So think about when you get a new message, what happens? Your screen flashes, your phone buzzes or dings or does something. It's one of those indicators that is designed to capture that bottom-up attention. Right? So if you're sitting there reading your document and your phone buzzes, automatically you either look at it or your brain hears it and, and says, hmm, should I look at it? And then all of those restart costs and resumption lags and switch costs that we talked about potentially come into play. Interruptions overwhelm our really limited cognitive resources. So while we're trying to focus on something, if we're getting these technological interruptions, then our overtaxed brains are getting more and more pressure while we're trying to do our work. So think about if you're sitting in a negotiation and you're having an intense conversation and your phone is on your lap and it's buzzing at you. And you're trying to keep that train of thought, but you can't because your mind keeps going and thinking about what's on your phone. Scientists have found out that even just thinking about what the message might be is just as distracting as actually checking the message. So you might say, you know, it's fine. I, I'm, I'm not actually looking at my phone or I'm not you know, looking at my watch or whatever it is. But it turns out your brain is doing the same thing. Your brain is wondering whether it should be looking at there and, and what might that message be and is it important, right? So your brain is still looking for the lion about to chase you and, and devour you. And it doesn't know the difference between the lion and a buzzing phone. And so this is problematic from an attention perspective. And so if I had to say in a nutshell what the answer is, technology is bad for attention. I don't think that's a, a big shock to anybody. I focus a lot about sort of kids today who've grown up with technology as always part of their lives. But there's been a lot of wonder about what technology must be doing to their brains, right? Our brains are plastic, so they change and they can change. And so researchers have speculated uh, what all this use of technology might be doing. If you look at a movie from now and compare it to a movie from, let's say, 1950, you'll notice how many switches there are between scenes, how fast the cuts are between, between different scenarios and, and just how quickly everything moves versus in 1950 when things were pretty slow and you were in one camera view for a really long time. We're becoming acculturated to this constant change and novelty and newness. And it's hard for us to have this sustained attention to anything. And I talk about the digital generation in my articles, but I also say, this isn't just them. This is everybody. This is everybody who's using technology, which is everybody. And so this is really concerning also because we don't seem to think we have a problem. That's also what researchers have found that kids today seem to think I'm great at multitasking. It's no problem. I really am watching the movie while I'm looking at my phone and I totally know what's going on in both situations. But we know from just neuroscience research 
that's not happening. It's, it's not really possible for you to know really what's going on in two things. So really the first step is figuring out that we have a problem. And so that's what I would say to negotiators first is, is recognize that we have something going on that we might need to pay attention to. We recently collaborated with four top universities to host over 600 business leaders and negotiation experts in our virtual negotiation and conflict resolution summit. It went really, really well, and it gave us an opportunity to get a unique understanding of the challenges and opportunities that come with virtual negotiation. And that's what prompted us to create this online negotiation training that's all about how to leverage technology to succeed in your online negotiations. It will break down the strategy and tactics you need to get the best possible deal for yourself and for your company, even though you're not negotiating in the traditional way. If this is something that's interesting to you, check out our website to learn more. The training is going to be held on June 4th. We'd love to see you there. And as an added bonus, you can get access to our online course and the virtual training for the same price. So make sure you check out the website if you're interested in learning more. And now back to the show. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. That's huge. And when it comes to solving any problem, awareness is always going to be the first step in in solving that problem. And as much of an issue it is for us when it comes to attention and focus with technology as it relates to these difficult conversations, I think there's also an opportunity because the opportunity comes from, is there for the people who are listeners of this show who recognize that there's a problem. And now you can say, okay, now that I recognize there's this issue, what can I do to address the issue? And I think there are two main things just generally, and I want to give you free reign to answer these two. The first thing would be creating these boundaries and these mechanisms that help to corral our focus. So when we're in the middle of a difficult conversation online, we can actually be fully engaged. And then the second thing is to be mindful of it as we navigate our day, day to day, and then recognize that we can take different steps to improve our focus in general. So then when we actually come to the conversation, we are in a much better mindset because we're, we're taking each day as an opportunity to essentially mentally train because the trite saying that 
the brain is like a muscle is true. <laughs> That's why people keep saying it. And so I want to give you a, an opportunity to kind of respond to those two things, just solutions in, term of, in terms of what we can actually do during the conversation and then outside of the conversation in general when, as it relates to mental exercise that we can do day to day. What are some solutions we have? Sure. So we can do a lot of things. I want to start with what we probably shouldn't do or, or some suggestions that we hear a lot is just turn it off. You know, just spend the whole day. Don't check your email all day. That's not realistic for anybody these days. It's just not the way the world is working now. People are going to expect to be able to reach you. And what researchers have also found is that there is a point at which we start to get anxious about the messages that we're not looking at. And so our brains are getting distracted just from that anxiety of I'm not able to check my phone. So much must be happening without me. And so that's the advice I wouldn't give is just turn it off and don't worry about it. I think we're past that time where that's a viable solution for us, but we can do some things. So I'll, I'll talk about two different parts of the negotiation because I like to think about the preparation for it and then when you're actually in the conversation. So let's start with the preparation. Let's say that that's going to involve a lot of reading. I'm going to read documents. And let's say I don't really want to read documents. It's sunny outside. You know, someday it'll be nice weather. It's nice outside. I want to go outside. <laughs> and so let's say I don't really want to do that. My brain would rather do something else. And one of those things I'd rather do, I'd rather look at my email, surf the internet, and do something. So what I can do is train myself to take technology breaks. I can say in 15 minutes, I will check all my messages, but I have to concentrate for 15 minutes. And if I can't do it for 15 minutes, maybe it's 10. I do this actually when I'm grading. After I grade five exams, I can check my email and I train myself that way. And if I think like, oh, I should look at that, I go, no, you haven't. You haven't done five exams. And so this sort of technology break is a thing that we can do to keep us focused in the interim. And maybe you can go longer than 15 minutes. Maybe you have wonderful willpower and you can go an hour before you check your messages. Whatever it is, just getting used to that concept of, having a delineated amount of time or, or a certain amount of work that you complete before you do the next thing can really help you keep on task for that certain amount of time. It just seems to help knowing that a break is coming up. It helps keep your brain on task to get to that break. In that way, I guess we're you know, reward oriented. So if I know I get to check my messages in five minutes, then I'm going to be good for the next five minutes. So that's something you can do while you're in the preparation stage. You could actually also do that in the conversation stage because I've been in a number of negotiations in which everyone's kind of looking at the phone under the table, sort of half listening to the conversation. I think we've all been there. We could just agree in that we will have a certain number of breaks to check messages and, and that we're going to turn off the phones and, and put them away for that amount of time. So we, that's something we could do. In terms of creating awareness, and training ourselves to be different, I would say start noticing when you check your phone or your messages, however you're doing it. Is it because I'm bored? Am I standing in line and I've lost the ability to stand in line without doing something else? Is it I'm reading this document and I, I don't want to read it and it's boring, so I want an escape? The first step is really just be aware of that. You might even write it down. You know, having a journal sounds a little hokey. You might want to have a journal and just say, you know, I was distracted here because I really didn't want to read this thing and I was bored or I was tired. And so I started doing this. As it turns out, looking at the internet is not very relaxing. I'll talk about that, I think, a little more when we get talking about stress. 
I know sometimes we decompress from whatever we're doing by looking at the internet or you know, looking at our devices. But it turns out that doesn't really give us a rest in the same way that if we just stood up and walked around for a minute, that might be a little more helpful. So being aware of when we're turning to technology can really help that first step. Then when we're in the conversation, that's a time when we want to have some, some boundaries and some ground rules. If we have our phone sitting on the desk, again, researchers have found it's, it's actually super distracting to have your phone just there where you can see it because then you're on alert for that message that might be showing up. And so to the extent that we can agree, we're going to put our phones away for a little bit. This is tougher now because we've got watches and, and all these other ways to be alerted. But if we could put something on silent, like right now my phone is on silent. I have three monitors up, but I've made sure that I can't see my email. I have a static document up there, so I'm not looking for a message. If we can silence some things when it really matters, that's going to help us a lot. And I know this is a tough piece of information or a tough bit of advice to follow because this conversation really matters and that other client who wants to reach us really matters, right? So how do we balance that? And that's when it comes into taking some of those some timed breaks to make sure that we're checking things, especially if we know there's another hot button situation that we need to deal with, making sure we have frequent breaks. Maybe it's every half an hour, we're going to take a quick break to look at our phones and make sure that we don't have a pressing email or a phone call right then. That can be important. Another thing that we can do just for brain training purposes is meditation. There is all sorts of research out there about how, how brilliantly wonderful meditation is it actually does reshape your brain. And so they found that persistent meditators have a thicker prefrontal cortex. So that's the part that deals with all the complex high-level processing. And there are all sorts of ways now to learn how to meditate. Apps, of course, there and, and all these things. There are a lot of free podcasts, free apps, all these ways. It supposedly takes about 20 minutes of practice a day to reshape your brain. In, with meditation, which sounds like a lot for busy people right now. You know, we're all at home with, with other people around us. It might be very hard to carve out 20 minutes, but it might not be impossible to carve out two minutes. And so we, we can, even if we learn how to just meditate, and meditation doesn't mean I close my mind and there's nothing in my mind. It may mean I take deep breaths for a minute. And what research has shown us is that that can trigger a relaxation response and we can just calm ourselves down. So as we're getting overwhelmed from everything that's coming at us, all the messages, all the conversations, everything, if we can step away and just breathe for a minute, that can help bring us back into a focused, good place to have a conversation. And so that's the sort of thing, let's say you're in that negotiation, can you take a bathroom break? <laughs> can, can you sit there and, and breathe for 30 seconds? You probably can. Right? And if you are able to work more meditation into your day, then not only does that have huge payoffs for focus and other things, I mean, meditation is just a, a wonderful cure-all for, for many, many, many things, but it's also something that we can call upon in a stressful situation to calm ourselves down. We can be aware of, uh, you know, my heart is racing or I'm breathing really fast or my shoulders are hunched and we can calm it down. And that can help us bring our most focused, aware self into the negotiation, which is really what we want. This is great. This is fantastic. And listeners, I'm sure you, you've noticed this. In all of this, there were several five-star points. And so if this is your first time listening to the podcast, 
the five-star point is when you recognize something that you can actually take and utilize in your everyday life or in your difficult conversations, then if you recognize that, give us a five-star review so other people can say, oh, this is a good podcast. Let me give it a listen. So that is your way of letting us know that you like the content and letting other people know that they will too. <laughs> so <laughs> there were so many good things in there, but I really especially like the cognitive sprints is the way I think about it, focusing on one thing for a short period of time and then essentially rewarding yourself with the online dose of dopamine that you're looking for, whether or not that helps you, that's a different thing, but <laughs> it, it at least gives you the knowledge that there's going to be a finite point of time where you need this level of focus, which is really good. And also recognizing that you need to be able to focus not just in the conversation, but also beforehand. In all of our episodes, we talk about how important preparation is to your success in negotiations. And if you haven't yet, download the free negotiation guides. We have a link to that in, in the description as well. We have 15 free negotiation guides you can get from the website because it's important, right? So yeah. making sure that you're focused in both of those phases of the negotiation process is going to be important. And then lastly, the ability to weave meditation into your actual conversations is something that I know is going to be new to a lot of people, but it's definitely doable as a business lawyer, just like you, and as a mediator, especially as a mediator, <laughs> there, are, <laughs> there are times where I just need to calm down because everybody's telling me their problems, right? But it's, it's really important to be able to take that time and um, find ways to ground yourself so you're not as emotionally reactive and you can stay in the moment at, at a higher level during the conversation. To make sure that we get through this in time, because we're having too much fun <laughs> talking about this first point, but let's talk about empathy and how empathy is impacted by technology. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So I want to start by talking about what empathy is and what it isn't which is another one of these things that nobody agrees upon. So when I'm thinking about empathy, I'm thinking about the ability to perceive and understand and recognize and maybe feel other people's feelings and points of view and nonverbal communications. When people hear empathy, a lot of times they're thinking about this sympathy concept, like, oh, I feel sorry for you. And so we as negotiators or, or we as lawyers might think, well, I don't want that. I don't want to feel sorry for somebody else. But empathy is bigger than that. So empathy has these sort of affective, sympathetic, feel sorry for you kind of stuff. And that's what researchers call empathic concern. But it also has this very cognitive component of perspective taking. And I can see your point of view. So it's pretty clear why negotiators need this sort of thing. So if I can think about how the world looks from your point of view, I can consider your interests, right, in, in negotiation parlance. And then I can think about crafting a deal that's going to be a deal that you would accept because it meets what you need, right? Empathy makes us more persuasive to other people. It helps us build trust and rapport. And so empathy is a really big deal for negotiation. It makes us better listeners. All these good things, the reasons why we want empathy. So how does technology play into that? Researchers, a team, Dr. Sarah Comrath and her research team did a cross-temporal meta-analysis. So what they did is they looked at this one index that measures empathy that was taken by American college students. And they had a sample size of almost 14,000 college students from 1979 to 2009. And so it 
basically looked at this measure of empathy, let's say when people were 18, so 18 year olds in 1979 versus 1981 versus 2009 and, and all of these things. And what they found is that there has been a significant decline in the more important measures of empathy. So that empathic concern and that perspective taking over that period of time. And the most significant decline has come since the year 2000. And they have speculated that it's because of technology or technology is a big contributing factor. It's all correlational. It's not causational. So they can't definitely say technology is making us less empathic. But they have found that um, the college students were measuring lower on this measure of empathy in a, a number of ways. And they think that technology may have something to do with that for reasons like we have so many anonymous interactions now. It's easy to be mean. So we're used to having this anonymous shield. These days, we have fewer close friends. We may have more acquaintances. We may have more friends or more connections online, but we have fewer close emotional contacts with other people. We have this instant gratification thing now. I remember back when I first got the internet and it was, you know, dial up and you got your 90 minutes a month and most of that time was spent connecting. And now if my webpage doesn't load in three seconds, I find myself getting frustrated. So we've got this very instant gratification thing going on. A lot of the social media that we have and a lot of the ways that we use the internet are very me focused. So I get to put stuff out there that's all about me and how great I am. I get to read about things that I'm interested in, that I care about. I can click on only the news articles that are interesting to me. And then the news agencies will give me more suggestions of things that are tailored to me. So it's a very me-focused kind of world that we've created, which is why they have suggested or thought that technology may be negatively impacting our ability to be empathic. And part of what is extra scary about this is that researchers think that most of our empathy skills are built in childhood, early childhood, and through adolescence, and then they pretty well are static after that. And so if our kids now are on screens, I know this is unavoidable now. Kids are not only using them for fun, and they're using them an extraordinary amount of time. Uh, One study I saw said they were using them almost seven hours a day, not including the time they're using it for school, but seven hours a day on top of that. This is very scary. I know my my two-year-old knows how to do things on my phone and, and look at pictures. And so if that's the time when they're building their empathy skills and they're not getting that opportunity because they are instead using these screens, not having face-to-face conversations with people, not getting to have all of those in-person interactions, and not just because we're quarantined, but because we're not doing that as much. We don't go to somebody's house and chat. We uh, you know, we text, we don't even call. Kids are not learning as much about how to be empathic. Kids learn all these empathy skills from their early training. They look at babies look where their parents look. They learn what's important. Babies get a lot of information from nonverbal communication. But if we're not doing that anymore, if we're all hiding behind screens, they're not getting that opportunity to practice. And Researchers have found that you don't learn the same stuff on a screen. So we've had all these great opportunities or or great efforts to try to teach your kid to be, you know, a brilliant person by watching this video. And it doesn't work in the same way that face-to-face interaction does work. So the more kids are using screens and the more their parents are using screens, rather than interacting with them, 
the fewer opportunities they're having to practice face-to-face kind of stuff. And so there's some sort of scary research out there about how kids that now are less able to interpret body language and other signals and pick up on nonverbal communication, which is worrying since that is so much of the communication that we do is nonverbal. And they're just not as good at picking up on those things. So all of these things have sort of troubling implications for empathy and the skills that we're developing. If we develop them young, we're not doing a good job on that now. We're not likely to have future generations of really high empathy people, which we as negotiators actually really want to have that. This is really interesting. And um, it reminds me of the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, How to Raise an Adult, two really great books that I enjoyed equal parts enlightening and disturbing, um, really, as it relates to technology's impact on our ability to connect and empathize and, and be mature adults. Now, as it relates for, to us as negotiators, as we're having these conversations, what it means is that there's a, a higher likelihood that the person on the other side is not going to have the level of empathy we would like them to have, have a high-level conversation. And again, going back to what we mentioned earlier, as it relates to self-awareness, we might say, hmm, I think there might be a reason for some of my issues and difficult conversations because I'm not doing a good enough job of empathizing myself. And so when it comes to thinking of solutions for this problem as it relates to empathy, both for us and for others, what are some things that we could do now to bridge that gap? So again, the first step is probably awareness. And so this is one of those times when I would want to be aware how often am I talking to you, but actually also looking at a screen or using one of my devices? That would be my first step. I might spend a week just noticing that. How frequently does my kid come to me and I say, hold on, I just have to finish this email or something like that. How often does that happen? That might be step one. Maybe the next week I might think about how often is somebody doing that to me? How often do I go to my husband and ask him a question and he's looking at his phone? And how do I feel when that happens? And kind of keep track of that for a week, just the impact of other people's technology usage on me. And then the third week might be putting that together. How might somebody be feeling when I do that? When I say, hold on, I need to look at my phone or yes, I'm paying attention to you. I'm just reading at the same time and putting ourselves in the other person's shoes. We're working that empathy muscle a little bit while they're doing it, while we're doing this. So We're both raising awareness and seeing whether we might have a problem and also thinking about the other person's perspective while we're doing that and flexing our empathy muscles. So that might be just a way to get into this notion of, do I have a problem? And if so, what am I going to do about it? Meditation also works for empathy because meditation works for pretty much everything. You know, I wish I had a better answer, but it it really does. There's good research out there on how meditation actually uh, has positive impacts on empathy and things like that then there are also some kind of cool, but really early stage interventions that some researchers have been doing with technology. So there was a a small study in which research teams sent text messages that were designed to provoke an empathic response. Something like, how do you think your friend might be feeling right now or or something like that? And they sent them to the, the kids over a period of time. And the results were a little mixed, but encouraging. There seemed to be some increase in empathy just from having received those text messages. So these types of interventions are really new. And I can't say that there's one that you can go out and, and use right now if you're, if you're having empathy issues, but that is something that we may be seeing in the future. 
what else can we do right now? We can work that empathy muscle and force ourselves to have face-to-face conversations. Sometimes it's easier to send a text or an email, but let's try picking up the phone and see what happens and just make ourselves do that. Especially when it comes to those difficult conversations, how often would we rather say you're fired via email rather than you're fired in person or have one of those other kind of hard conversations? But these are conversations that we should a lot of the time be having in person. I like to think a lot about the parallel between doctors and lawyers. And so think about if your doctor sent you a text message, like you have pancreatic cancer, it's stage four, you probably have four months to live. I'm really sorry. Can you imagine getting that in a text message? Well, a lot of the stuff that we as lawyers or we as negotiators say in a message like that can be brutal, not maybe life and death, but it it can be brutal also. And it's a time where we should be having that in-person or phone or whatever is a richer kind of conversation or richer kind of medium rather than just text or email. I mean, text in the, in the written word sense. The more we can practice interacting with people, the better. And I know right now it's hard because we're distanced from other people and so we're relying upon technology, but we can use Zoom or any of these other online platforms or we can use the phone rather than writing a message. And that just might be a good step to help get over that concept of it's easier to do it on a screen and not talk to a person. Is that less efficient? Sometimes it definitely is less efficient. There's also the cost of efficiency versus how are our skills for dealing with other people deteriorating or are we continuing to maintain them? And so that's another way that we can try to help support our empathy skills. The thing that I like the most about these pieces of advice is that they are easily actionable. And there are things that we can do right now to start improving our ability to empathize with other people. And in specific circumstances, now we know what we should do to be more empathetic during a conversation. And I really like the the piece of advice that you gave where you said that when it is a very heavy conversation, we should have more personal communications instead of just sending that text message or that email, letting them know the bad news. We're doing that as a a way to protect ourselves emotionally. And Mm -hmm. we might try to tell ourselves, yes, it is more efficient. But if we take the time and and, and think about it, there's a difference between efficient and effective. They're not always the same thing. And sometimes in in your attempt to be expedient, you might do more harm than good. So I I really appreciate that. And, And you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds as though when it is a conversation that has a little bit more weight in general, maybe it's not just delivering bad news, but just in general, we'll be able to be more empathetic. And the other person will likely be more empathetic if we have more dimensions as it relates to the communication method. So we have email down here, then we have phone call, then we have video conference, and then we have in person, each getting more personal which could lead to higher levels of empathy. Am am I on the right track there? I think that's right. I think the more signals we get from our conversation partners, the better. So obviously the best is face-to-face. Not only do we get the visual, the auditory, we even get pheromones. We get chemical signals from other people that we, uh, we don't realize that we're getting. But the more we can get some of that, the better. And that's why people talk about the, the richness of the medium. So the ones that give us the more signals are more rich. There's also less opportunity to be misunderstood and a better opportunity to pivot. So if I say something and I see you kind of raise an eyebrow, 
in a way I hear you're not buying it, I know I should change. I should, I should pivot, right? I can understand that you're not hearing it the way I want it to be heard or you're not convinced. And so I need to say it a different way. And so having a conversation in a more rich medium lets us do that. Whereas if I send you a message, a written message, I don't know how you're going to take it. I don't know how you interpreted my tone. In a text message, I could use an emoji, but in a professional text message, I might not want to, right? It might not be a good idea. And so will you understand what I'm trying to convey in the way I'm trying to convey it? If I'm trying not to use things that might be seen as unprofessional, like lots of exclamation points or emojis or something like that. And so having that conversation where you can hear my voice and you can see my face and I can see and hear you can really help to give those extra signals. And so not just help me to make you feel better, but just help me to deliver the message better and deliver extra message if I, if I sense that that is necessary or give an, an extra explanation of why I came to the conclusion I came to or whatever I might need to make me a more effective communicator. I can do that better if I get more signals from you. This is great. Well, fantastic. And with the time remaining, let's talk about stress and how technology can impact the, the stress that we experience as it relates to these particular conversations and just our, our work life in general, which will then have an impact <laughs> on the conversations too. Yeah. So technology does really at least three things that impact our stress. The first goes back to all those interruptions that we were talking about at the beginning. So what happens is our internal systems get upset. Our, we get aroused. We experience arousal. Our autonomic uh, nervous system gets flooded with stimuli when we get distractions and interruptions and messages and, and just lots of stuff coming at us, right? And so we experience this heightened sense of stress and worry. Our heart rate goes up. Our, uh, all these things happen. Our blood pressure goes up. And so that's not good for us, right? So the more we are interrupted from a task, the more we are bombarded with stimuli, the more our stress levels go up which is why, especially if you are a more introverted person, you might find that you need to just step back from everything and everyone and have people stop talking to you for a moment to collect yourself. Everybody feels that on some level. And so digital interruptions and digital messages and all these little things pinging at you, they contribute to that as well. And they contribute to the sense of overload. Speaking of overload, the next thing that our online lives do is hit us with a lot of little tiny embedded choices. So think about when you are reading a web page and let's say you're reading a recipe for lasagna bolognese and you're looking and it's like lasagna bolognese and it's a, this is a typical recipe from Bologna and the, the word Bologna is hypertext, right? So you can click on that and go to another page that tells you about the city of Bologna. And so you do that and you go there and then you come back and all of a sudden there's a video playing of some chef making lasagna bolognese and doing this. And your, your brain has to think about, should I watch the video? Should I click on the link? Should I go there? Should I keep reading down? And it's just a lot of extraneous problem solving. Think about you're reading a book. Would you do a crossword puzzle while you were trying to read the book? Probably not. It doesn't help you read the book and it just adds more to your brain's load. So when we're reading online or doing something online, there are all these choices. There are all these clicks to link suggested articles. You might also like this, right? And our brains have to sort through all those things to do the basic task of just reading the text on the screen that we wanted to read. 
And so we talked about how our brains have really limited capacity to work. Well, this adds a huge burden to that capacity that we have. So it just overloads us. And uh, one scientist I read wrote it as, your brain begins to panic when you're bombarded with all of this. Your brain begins to panic and go into survival mode, which is also actually bad for your attentional processes, your performance, your effectiveness, and it sends your stress way up. And the third chunk of this is the societal expectations that we've created. We talked earlier in the podcast about how we have a culture now where you can't tell a client, you can't reach me all day, I won't be available, right? People expect to be able to reach you all the time. And I know I worked when I was in my, my law firm, I had a, a partner who did not sleep very much. And so uh, this partner would email me in the middle of the night and I would panic when I woke up and, and I have to check the phone because there's an email. And I just later realized that was when the partner was able to work. And it didn't really matter whether I responded at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. But I felt this huge pressure to respond. Think about if you send a text message, and especially if you see that the person read it, but didn't say anything, and you're going, why didn't you respond to me? Right? So now we have this pressure. Like, I don't want to click it and let you know that I read it because then I'm worried that you're going to get upset that I didn't respond. So we have this culture in which instantaneous communication, instantaneous response is expected. And people get angry or frustrated if you don't. And so you feel stressed like you have to all the time. So this isn't good for us as, as negotiators, as people. It's not a really healthy situation for us to be in, in which we are online all the time. It's also, everything is connected to attention too. So uh, it's, it's bad for our attention. We're in this state of just continuous partial attention is the term that's used. We're always on alert for something that's going to come to us. We're always waiting for that email or that text message. And being in that state of continuous partial attention is tiring, it's stressful, it's debilitating. And so we need to find some ways to manage that. Whether we're lucky and we can say, I'm not reachable for this whole day or this whole week, that would be amazing. Or we're not so lucky, but maybe we can say, I'm not reachable for the next hour. And maybe we can do that. And so we need to start thinking about ways that we can carve back some part of us back. Right. And, you know, this reminds me of the, the name of a really great podcast called Negotiate Anything. <laughs> and when we think about this as the thing that's really one of the many things that's really causing a lot of stress is the lack of boundaries. It, it's less clear now than ever, especially when people are working at home. It's like, well, my my job is now at my house. So am I always at my job? Am I always on call? It's not clear. And when we talk about negotiating anything, what do we want? We want boundaries. We want some clarity. We need to communicate that with the other side. They might push back. And so you can negotiate this as part of your responsibilities in your role. So I think that's something that's really important to do. But it's just incredible the toll technology is taking on us in so many ways that we don't recognize. Because as you were talking about the, the links in different articles and whatnot, I was busting up laughing because I say, this, that explains it. I, if I'm reading an article, I start with one tab open, then at the end, there are like 16 tabs open because <laughs> I'm trying to consume everything. I, I love information. I try to get through a book a week. And so if I see a link that could add to my depth of knowledge, I'm like, well, I need to read that too. But is it really improving me? 
that's questionable given the circumstances. But like you said, recognizing that these are many decision points that are coming up that will have an impact on your cognitive abilities is an important first step. And just for me, as you were saying that, I think what I'm going to do is if I'm reading something that's important to me, I'm going to print it out. (laughs) I'm just going to print it out, close my laptop and put my phone far away so I can actually be one with the material and absorb it. Yeah, it's, it may not be great for the trees. So, you know, double side your printout. But the research does show us that we tend to understand less and retain less when we're reading on a screen than when we're reading on paper, even if we're reading a PDF. So I'm, I'm all in favor of uh, printing it out and reading it. I do that with stuff that matters. I definitely do. And I would say for the people who are listening to the podcast who are in a leadership position, think about the boundaries that you set and the boundaries that you might be willing to let those working for you set. Sometimes it really is critical for somebody to respond to a message all day and all night. Sometimes you're in the middle of that deal and the seconds matter and and that's really important. And other times it's not. Sometimes things can wait. Um, And a lot of these expectations start from the top, right? So if the boss is always sending emails, never taking break, never taking the vacation days, how are the other employees going to do that? Are they going to be looked at as good workers? And so you might say, well, I want my people to be on call all the time. I need all my people. But the risk is burnout. The risk is that you end up losing good people whom you might have been able to keep had they had a more manageable level of interaction. So letting them take that week or that afternoon or or that hour in which they're not on call and they just have a break may be a really worthwhile trade-off. So that goes back to your, your concept of efficiency versus, I forgot the word to use, but, but good performance. So it may be a worthwhile investment to set some boundaries and to permit some boundaries to be set. And you may end up getting a really much better work product from people if they know they're going to work really hard in that time and they're not going to take coffee breaks and they're not going to watch cat videos on the internet or they're just going to work, but then they're going to leave and have some time when they've left to be themselves. That may be something to think about and to offer to people when it's possible to offer them that. This is great. I wish we could keep talking. This has been fantastic. But before you go, can you let the listeners know again about your research and how they can get in touch with you and and things like that? Absolutely. So again, my name is Lauren Newell, and I'm a professor at the Ohio Northern University Pettit College of Law. So it's law.onu.edu. If you go on our website, you can find my profile page and there's a link to all of my research there. You can find copies of all my articles available for free. Print them out and read them carefully. (laughs) (laughs) Don't read them online, but uh, they're all available for free there and really interested in this topic. So if you have knowledge and expertise, I would love to hear from any of you who have sources or experiences that you want to share with me. I'm happy to, um, to go down the rabbit hole and, and look more into this. So I would welcome any feedback. Fantastic. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciated it. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Congratulations. You've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. 
the best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.